This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, you, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. We're back. We're back. Uh, I've bought another property, um, and I thought it was time to do another podcast. I, I've been off the airways for a while. I'm not sure why that is. I think that's just life just gets so busy, and I've got to be in the right state of mind to be able to do a podcast. It's um, And plenty of stuff comes up too, and some of it's a little bit too controversial. So uh, I like doing stuff that I'm not going to get in trouble talking about, because um, some of it's obviously very personal. Um, so I just like talking about... Uh, topics that are actually real and properties that I've bought is actually a really easy one to do. So uh, I have recently acquired another property. Um, This is a beach house. Um, It will be available for rent but um, I will use it for a handful of weeks during the year. It's located in Venus Bay, South Australia. Um, That's a tiny little town on the Air Peninsula. Now, if you look at Australia, I'm living in Adelaide down the bottom, in the middle of South Australia. Uh, this little town is eight hours drive away from my house. Now, I told my receptionist, Sarah, that it's eight hours away from my house. And she said, wow, do you realize you could drive to Melbourne in that time? Well, it actually hadn't occurred to me, but now it has. Uh, is the eight-hour driving a problem? Mm, it takes a day to get there, but... Um, I don't actually mind driving for eight hours. I know that's crazy, but um, I've just got back from there. I was over there a a week ago with my twin 16-year-old boys, and they drove over on their L-plates. So that was actually a real hoot. We had fun in the car, and um, I guess getting there is the the, uh, what you're trying to achieve. However, you've got to enjoy the journey as well. So we mix it up a bit. We stop. We, we found some nice, I was going to say restaurants, but roadhouses. Um, we get our steak sandwiches and our chocolate milkshakes. and Then we've we found a little roadhouse at Kimber. We stop there, have butter chicken. It turns into sort of like the, the eight-hour drive turns into a nine-course degustation. Um, we found an amazing little coffee shop up at Port Augusta. So along the way, oh, and then we stop at the, the Woodner Hotel for dinner Um my buddy runs the pub. He'll come up in the story a little bit later. But uh, yeah, the, the driving does not honestly seem like a problem. I guess the only thing with the eight-hour drive is you can't go away for a weekend. Uh, but that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. It means that you go away, you go away for a week. Um, you allow an each a day either side for travel, and then you've got a five-day um, break in the meantime. Five days away... Um, and, and if you incla- include the driving days, which if they're fun, well, then that's you're still on holidays. Um, and you can make it productive while you're in the car. You can be uh, making phone calls. Um, yeah, I guess you can't really do much more than that. Um, you can listen to music and podcasts, um, audio books. I'm getting into the Elon Musk e- uh, audio book for the second time at the moment and loving it. Yeah, so... Location-wise, it's miles away. However, it is a gorgeous little town. It's a fishing village. There's 100 shacks there. It's 
they're all owned by the local farmers. There are a few Adelaide people who own them, crazy like me. Um, but there's a real sense of community there. It's a country spirit. It's a welcoming, encouraging, fun vibe in the town. Um, everyone's so welcoming. I, I'm trying to understand why it's like that. Uh, but I think it's because the people who live over there are so isolated that they actually enjoy meeting new people who have moved into the area and appreciate what they appreciate. Um, this little village is on the edge of a little um, inlet, which is like a massive sea, also inland sea. Uh, I think it would be 20 kilometres across this little bay, um, and it has a little mouth that's probably about 200 metres wide, and then you can travel out to the, the, the Great Ocean. Um, you can um, fish out in the ocean... Catch crayfish, tuna. It's got to be calm enough, and you got to have a decent-sized boat. But in the little harbour, um, the actual Venus Bay, it's very calm, no matter which way the wind's blowing from. So you can just basically have a tinny in there, and you can uh, catch whiting, um, scallops. Uh, I mean, really, we're all only really fishing for whiting. So um, you get Tommy Ruff, uh, salmon trout as well. And lots of squid. So it's a great little place to go. Very picturesque and beautiful. The, the village faces north. And I I think if you find... It's quite unique in South Australia to have beaches which face north. So I think that's what makes it so um, nice to stay at. Because when you, up, when you wake up and overlook the view... The, 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 the hill... Uh, sorry. The town is actually on the side of a hill as well. So... Um, Every shack in the village has a view. Now, everyone says, did you buy on the Esplanade? Well, no, I didn't. I bought one row back, but I bought double storey, and you can see all the way, like you've got 180-degree views, which is amazing. Um, so that's a little bit about the town. Um, I've been visiting there since I think my dad started taking me there when I was eight, and we used to stay in the caravan park. Um, he'd usually get a mate to come over as well so we could take caravan behind one car and a boat behind the other car and we would just fish and back in the days when I was in primary school I mean it seems ages ago but we used to catch so many fish now a lot of bag limits and boat limits have been introduced now and I mean there were size restrictions back then but I think the fish might have been a bit smaller than the what you can take now we, but I can just remember getting 120 fish in a day and we'd take over a chest freezer in the bottom of the boat and we'd fill it up with frozen fish and bring it back. It was just incredible. Um, so I fished so much as a kid that I got sick of fishing. It was my dad's passion. It wasn't really my fish. It wasn't my passion. Um, but it is fun when you're in a boat and you just throw your line in and if it's dead calm, you can see the bottom and you can see the fish swimming around and grabbing your bait. I love that sort of fishing. It's sort of like fishing inside an aquarium. Um, <clears throat> and you can't really do that unless the water's really calm. And because this is an enclosed bay, um, it's often calm. Um, usually first thing in the morning before the wind comes up, you can go out and fish and just have a great old time. But so, I mean, I guess it was the last thing that I was ever going to buy. I mean, my passion is surfing, uh, motorbike riding, um, so buying a fishing shack is probably a little bit unusual for me. However, um, I just love the lifestyle and I, I'm happy to go out fishing with my mates and my kids and my wife if it's going to be a fun social occasion. I, I'm not one of those fishermen that will go out and fish for eight hours and um, stay out all day if I'm not catching anything. 
it's short, sharp and shiny. Get out there. Um, if we're not catching anything, come back in and do something else. But usually when I do go out with friends, and a lot of the fishermen over there, you know, well, I've got one particular f- farming friend who's got a boat and he's a really good fisherman. Whenever I'm over there, he'll come down, grab his boat, take me out fishing. We'll go out. We usually catch heaps of fish. When I say heaps of fish, never the 120, but um, somewhere between 10 and 30, which is the boat limit, which is a lot. And we come back in, cook them up, and then he... We, I mean, it's it's weird. Like, who takes you fishing in their boat, helps you clean the fish, pays for petrol? Um, he He's so clever at fishing that he knows where to get cockles in the bay or no one else knows where to get them. and So he doesn't have to actually buy cockles from the shop, which is really expensive now anyway. But um, So he does all of that, sort of like the traditional um, old-school fisherman. And I love doing all of that with him because he's just got the right, you know, he uses a hand line, he's old school, but he catches heaps of fish and he just always knows where they are and knows how to position the boat. But anyway, the thing that blows me away is we go fishing all day with, well, we go fishing for a few hours in his boat. He gives me the fish at the end of the day. Like, who does that? <laughs> and he just says something along the lines of, uh, oh, I've got heaps of fish, I don't need any more. You can have them, mate. And I just think that's just such a nice gesture, such a nice thing to do. Anyway, he's a really good mate, but I don't think he just does that with me. I think he does that with any of his mates. So getting back to it, um, so I've been going over there since forever. Um, I'm just getting to the stage now where my boys, uh, I've been taking them over the last couple of times, and they're actually starting to really enjoy it as well. So um, they're learning to experience what I experienced as a kid, and they actually love it. Like, because they haven't been bombarded with as much fishing as me, they love fishing. Well, one of them does, actually. Well, the other one probably. He fishes, but he's not as passionate as the other one. So, um, but, but that's great fun. And he, they love meeting all of the local farmers over there and the neighbours and the fishermen. And, um, yeah, my mates, I guess, are very welcoming and very encouraging to the young boys. And, um, they'll take the motorbike riding. Um, uh, you know, we'll go and do fun stuff on their farm, have campfires and camp ovens and, um, yeah, just... And then, yeah, we also... One of my boys, the one that's not so much into the fishing, he loves surfing, so we can go and find this amazing remote locations and go surfing there and it's just such surreal experiences watching sort of like schools of salmon trout swim under your surfboards and watch the waves crashing over the reef and watching sort of... Yeah, just because it's over there, the water is just so pristine and beautiful and crystal clear. Um, It's just an amazing location, but it's just a long way away. Anyway, the main reason I'm doing this podcast is to talk about just the techniques and and the strategy and and, and the whole story behind me acquiring the shack. Um, So it had never occurred to me to buy a shack, but what I've been doing is um, every school holidays, and, and, and even with COVID now, because you can't travel overseas, it's been more apparent that for the last two years, um, I've taken the boys over there in the in the winter school holiday, so June, um, uh, and we've gone over and we've rented a shack um, and rented a boat. And that's been a really good experience. And they've actually enjoyed it a lot more than I've thought. And um, we've taken a couple of other dads over and um, their sons. And so everyone just hangs out and um, we just have a great time. 
and it's a really good time for the boys who are young to sort of bond with the older men and sort it's not like initiation but just a real sort of coming of age them sort of transferring into manhood uh, you can see that happening when we're over there and, and just this, the, the way they interact with the older males um, you don't get to see that as much back here in Adelaide when they're at school so um, we've been over there on a couple of holidays and so just meeting with a few of the people over there and then a shack cropped up. It came up on the internet. Um, this is Wednesday, probably about six weeks ago from now. Um, I was, I got a text. So it was the end of Wednesday and I had to go out for a gin night, which was sort of like at a stockbroker's office. And so, we, you know, you, it's sort of a networking event where you meet other professionals and then the stockbroker gives a bit of a spiel about what he does. So it's a fun night sort of interactive meeting people and having a drink um a gin distiller was there talking about his product um so and it was from six to eight uh now <clears throat> that particular night mercedes had given me a uh i think it's an eqc car um which is an electric car so i had that and when i picked it up it had 184 kilometers of charge on it it had been on charge for a couple of hours, but that wasn't a lot, I didn't think, when I picked it up. Um, I got it at about 2 o'clock that afternoon, and then I was I brought it back to the office, and then I was jumping in it at about 5.30 to head off to this gin night. Now, when I say gin night, I, I might have maybe one or two drinks over the course of two hours, which is fine. So it's not a big um, swim-through drink-wise. It's just sort of like a networking opportunity and uh you might just have a glass of gin in your hand while you're walking around the room i was a bit worried about the car though having such low um charge because i had to get home and then back and i don't have a charging station at my house and my house i think is about 20 kilometers from my office so i knew i had sort of 40 at 40 kilometers but then I had to detour to the gin night in the city. So there's probably another five kilometers. And then I had to detour and pick my kids up from their um, school that they were studying, which was probably another five kilometers. So we're up to about 50. Um, and if I was going to take for a test drive, that might be another 20 or 30. So there's 70, 80 uh, without even doing much. And I knew I had 100 and... Um, Oh, I'm not sure whether it was it was it was low hundreds. So um, I left at five thirty. Now in winter here, it was actually starting to get dark, so I was worried about losing charge. So I didn't turn the lights on. Now <laughs> LED lights, and this is a hundred and sixty thousand dollar car. I don't think that was a great idea. Um, it was sort of a dusk sort of. Um, timing of the day so when I arrived at the um, stockbroker's office I pulled up on the street and I didn't have my lights on I was sort of just on dust but I thought that, that was sort of going to save me a few kilometers of charge anyway before I left I got a message from my buddy who runs the hotel over on the Air Peninsula and saying check your emails so I checked my emails and there was a uh, he'd sent me a link to a property that was for sale and it was at this beach house um, now, it looked pretty good in the photos. It was run down, but if you looked at the location and the views, 
Um, so it's a rundown double story shack, which is sort of like steel frame, sort of a double story shed uh, with a sh- with an, with a like another boat shed behind it, but amazing views and sort of like seventy style and untouched for a long, long time. Green carpet, green carpet squares. Um, but so I thought that's not too bad, and the price was um, not that expensive. It, it, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it actually looked really good in the photos. So I flicked it on to Sophie and I said, "Hey, this looks pretty good. What do you think?" Now, now we hadn't even been talking about buying a beach house, so um, I I sent it on to her, and then I left, and I was driving. And then when I got there, she must have opened up her emails and seen my message. Uh, and she was said, this looks amazing. We've got to get it. Ring the agent now. And it was a bit awkward because by that time, I'd sort of said hello to my mate. I'd arrived. I grabbed a drink and I sort of had to sleep, sneak out into the hallway to have a conversation. So um, I rang my mate who owned the pub and I said, Sophie's really keen. What do we need to do? And he said, I'll ring the agent and I'll get back to you. And then by that time, I think Sophie had run me back and said, don't miss out on this. We've got to get it. You've got to ring the agent. Um, you know, put in your offer straight away. Beat the rush. Now, you can remember in the backdrop of all of this is we're in the crazy pandemic price model, uh, price situation at the moment where prices have gone up 30%. I, I'm not really rushing out to buy any properties at the moment because the market's just crazy. And anyway, this one's come up and what do you do? Like, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's not as crazy as the prices in Adelaide, but I think that that's all filtered through the whole of the state now. Uh, regional areas as well, as well are experiencing inflated property prices and more interest. So um, I was reluctantly pursuing down this track knowing that I could be walking into a firestorm here and might go for a crazy price but anyway got to be in it to win it so I was just exploring um, the situation just wanted to get some more information from the agent like finding out how long it had been on the market it, it I mean my, my buddy who'd sent it through more or less said that while he was on the phone uh, that afternoon so maybe an hour or two before I'd actually been emailed it um, it had popped up in his feed so um, it was hot off the press. Uh, the agent rang me back and said, oh, okay, yeah, I hear that you're interested. Um, look, I'm going to be down there tomorrow doing an inspection for someone. Um, I'll FaceTime you, I'll call you, and you, you know, I'll show you around on my phone, and you can do a virtual inspection. So I said, okay, no worries, and didn't think much more about it. And enjoyed the rest of the gin night, but they were sort of wanting to know why I was on the phone so much, and I said, oh, well, some, you know, properties come up, and they're sort of going, oh, well, how are you going? Have you bought it? And then, you know, they're texting me the next day saying, did you get it? And it was all too soon, but I was just saying, yeah, I'm still interested. I'm still pursuing it. So uh, enjoyed that gin night, ended up getting home, um, and we were doing a couple of fast accelerations in that car on the way home with my boys. And it, The acceleration in those electric cars is just phenomenal. There's no lag between trying to put your foot down and then the car accelerating. It's just direct power. Which an electric car, if you're not used to it, it's quite um, overwhelming. It's it's sort of like it feels like you're on a roller coaster. That acceleration when you're going down um, 
into doing a loop. Uh, that's the same sensation when you put your foot down in an electric car. Uh, so we, anyway, we had a real buzz, and I, by that time it was sort of like eight o'clock. I was picking up the boys from um, their school, and I was in the car park, and I had the trade plates on in this car, and I'd turn the engine off, but I, I think I turned the lights off, but they must stay on for like five or ten minutes after you turn the engine off, and it looked amazing. Like there's a big red um, light all around from sort of almost like the rear passenger side door all the way around to the driver's passenger door and then there were a series of lights underneath that so it was standing out in the car park it almost almost looked like a bit of a ufo and the kids were coming up to me going wow whose car is this and they're sort of looking in the window and they saw that it was my boys they just couldn't believe it thought wow um you know your dad's amazing to have cars cool cars like this <laughs> i was loving it it was fantastic Anyway, we drove home, but with those a couple of fast accelerations, our charge had rapidly dropped down to, um, I think we were like 80 k's now, um, and we made it home, but I think when we got home, we were on maybe 50, and I knew that I had 20 kilometers to get to the office, but if it actually deteriorated, the charge deteriorated at a faster rate than the number of kilometers you're doing, I might not make it to the office, so I'm starting to sort of panic a bit. Um Anyway, there was a power cord in the car, so I did back the car up at like 10 o'clock when I sort of panicked a bit that night, thinking I'd better get some charge on it. So I plugged it into the power point. Um, It all sort of lit up, and it said, your car will be fully charged at 11 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, Now, I had to be at work at 9 o'clock, so I wasn't going to have full charge but I thought I'd leave it on charge overnight and see how we go. And it, it was quite interesting because when you plug the power charger into the, you know, the, what, what normally is the fuel tank, when you lock the car, you can't pull the cord out and it's got a green light on it and the dash lights up and it shows you where where exactly you are in, this, in the charging cycle. So it was pretty cool. Like the tech in it was excellent uh, and it was amazing to drive. Um, but I woke up the next morning and then unplugged it and I think I drove the kids to school in it, but, it had only gone up from, um, I'm not sure, maybe it added another 60 kilometres to the charge overnight. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of charge there. Um, obviously, it wasn't the high-speed Tesla charger that you should have. I mean, I think that that would have worked well, but this was just sort of like an emergency power lead that you'd use if you um, if you were desperate to get some charge. So it did help, but not a lot of charge was on it. But um, So I got back to the office, and it was an amazing car to drive, but... It was almost like a sign of sigh of relief when I delivered it back to the dealership because um, it was constantly in the back of your mind as how much charge you've got and where you could go. Um, but I think that that would all be overcome if you had a proper charger. Anyway, now, so 9.30 comes around and then the agent rings me and says, look, I'll finish my inspection. I can do the FaceTime now. So she showed me around the shack and it, was, it actually looked really, really good. Um, it was... Uh, you know, an honest old shack, pretty run down, nothing too flash, but amazing location, amazing views, and just in a really good town. So I did that, and then I said, okay, can you send me the office offer sheet? So at that stage, there's basically two people um, in the running. It was a deceased estate. Um, they were sort of keen to make a decision I sensed for a, um, like quite quickly. Um, the gentleman who lived there died six years prior and I think there'd been some issues with the settlement of the estate for, and I wasn't too sure about all of that but um, they basically had to get three parties to all agree to it so 
Um, I did the FaceTime on the Thursday and then on the Friday she sent me a letter of offer at like 10 o'clock in the morning. I wanted to get it back as quickly as possible and have as least conditions on it as possible. So I rang my bank manager and I said, um, look, this is what I'm doing. Um, would you be okay with that? And he sort of said, mm, yeah, it sort of sounds all okay to me. So go ahead with it, but make it subject to finance. Now, I knew if I put a subject to finance clause in there, um, it was going to be less attractive to the vendors. So I was trying to avoid that at all cost. Now, there's a clever way of doing this, in my opinion. And what you can do is you can go unconditional and then you know that um, it'll take a while to go to contract um, between when you put in your letter of offer and it'll also take a while to get the form ones and most people, most agents only order the form ones. Well, this, sorry, this agent said she was only going to order the form ones when she had a signed contract. So I had the lag from letter of offer to contract and then contract to end of cooling off. Now, cooling off, if you put it in your name, you've got two days from the close of business, midnight, the day that everyone signed the contract. So I went unconditional knowing that I still had to try to get my pre-approval before my cooling off finished if I was successful. So um, she gave a range for the price that they wanted. So I went right at the bottom of the range. But then I spoke to my wife and she said, oh, look, I think because there's three parties involved, make sure it's divisible by three. So I increased my offer in my head by $5,000 so that everyone... So all of the um, beneficiaries, the three kids, all got an equal share. And that sort of made sense to me. Uh, and then I submitted it. And then that was on the Friday. I think I sent it maybe, oh, it was either around lunchtime. Didn't hear anything Saturday. Sundays I checked my emails. Um, and there was an email from the agent saying, oh, one of the kids, or one of the children has accepted it. I'll see if I can get the other two over the line. Now, she'd said that the son actually wanted the top of the price range that was printed online. Now, I mean, the price range was 25000 So I'd gone lowest part of that, but then increased it by five. So I was still effectively 20000 below what this guy had in his mind. So I sort of sensed there might be a bit of resistance. And when I put my offer in, I said, I didn't want, like I knew this other party was, was hovering around and it was, she told me that it was three people from the local town who were all going to pitch in together and buy it. Um, so I knew they were hovering around. Um, I didn't want her to use my offer as leverage. So I said in my email, even though it's probably a little bit rude, I said, this is my first and final offer. Please make the vendor aware that I will not be increasing my offer. So I didn't want her to think that she could leverage off me or come back to me and get a higher offer. Um, so I think that that was an important strategic move. Then nothing happened on Monday. On Tuesday, she rang me at 9 o'clock and said, I've got the offer from the other party, which was a bit of a surprise to me because I thought that sort of dropped off the face of the earth. But they hadn't. They were still hanging around and they'd put their offer in. 
and she said to me, um, because you put in your offer first, you've now got an opportunity to increase your offer. She wouldn't give me any indication of what the other party had offered, but she sort of implied that it was more than mine. So I just sort of thought, no, I'm not going to be pushed around on this. Um, it is what it is. Take it or leave it. You know, my offer's final. So she said, okay, no worries. I'm just letting you know that, you know, you did have the opportunity if you wanted it. And I said, no, thanks for the opportunity, but you've got my offer. I'm not I'm not going anywhere. And then she rang back like 15 minutes later and said, really sorry, but you've missed out. The other party offered more and they've decided to accept the other offer. I said, okay, that's fine. Um, no worries. So I let my bank manager know and I let Sophie know because I just sort of thought that the bank manager was already working on the deal and then he came back and he goes, well, is that ever going to be the chance that you might still bite something over there if it comes up? And I said, no, this was just a one-off. And then um, the agent said, look, it's been nice having this conversation with you. Uh, you know, I'm, I can see that you're interested. I'm disappointed. Sorry, I'm sorry that you've missed out on the property. However, if something else crops up, I'll let you know and I'll contact you. So, okay, well, I was thinking I'll never hear from her again. Um, and I just thought, well, I'll just get on with my life. And I, th- I sort of thought it was a bit of COVID pricing. Um, you know, this place was, I could tell it was run, and run down and needed a lot of work. But I was still happy to have a crack if, if it all fell in my lap. Obviously, it wasn't going the right direction. So that day was okay. I was I was a little bit disappointed. I mean, you, it's, it's hard not to get emotional in these situations, even though you can do your best to not show any emotion. I still, you know, I still get excited when I have my wins and I get disappointed when I have my losses, but I'm getting better at controlling that and getting better at not showing other people into that part of me. So anyway, just got on with life and then four o'clock, um, I was on the phone and I saw I missed a call from the agent. I'm thinking that's unusual. Maybe she actually is talking to someone as a result of this whole um, deal, and you know maybe the neighbours do want to sell. And but I was on the phone, so I just let it go to message bank, and I thought, well, I'll ring her back in due course. But there's no need to rush anything. And it was probably a pretty busy afternoon actually. And then I was still on that phone call, and then 15 minutes later, she rang again. I thought that's unusual. So it took me about another five minutes to finish off my phone call. So then I rang her back and I said, hi, um, what's up? She said, oh, you've won the property. I was like, what? Hang on, I'm just on the floor here. I'm knocked over. You've got to give me some more background. What? What's happened? She said, oh, well, the other party that offered more money had more conditions. And I'm thinking, oh, well, they did the inspection. So obviously there's something structurally wrong with this place. Um, that's what I was going through in my head. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm the silly idiot who didn't put any conditions in the offer. Um, so I wonder what that could all be. Anyway, um, I um, was quite excited and basically it was mine. But I still had that sort of question mark in the back of my head. Now, I knew I had... I still didn't have this, the finance under control. Um, I knew that I had the cooling off coming up. So what my plan was, was now um, I signed all the contract the next day, so did the owners, and then they couldn't get out. But 
there was an old caravan in the front yard and then there was an old speedboat in the shed and I wanted them gone. So I was going to make them a condition of the sale. But then I thought, well, no, I don't actually have to settle. I can hold, I can hold up settlement and say that those two things must be removed before um, I pay the money for the property. Now, it's a little bit ruthless, but you can do it. And I had heard of people doing that. And I thought that I've got like, I don't know, three or four weeks before, well, because the agent had said that she had to get the um, Form 1 from the Elliston Council and they're really slow. So I'm thinking I've got probably three or four weeks before I need to actually go and have a look at it. Because I don't, but it's a lot of money. I don't want to actually buy something over the internet and then find out that um, I'd bought something that I don't know, was across the road from a power line station or um, had a terrible smell from the neighbor's septic tank or had a noisy barking dog or all those things that you can't actually see from looking at something on the internet. Um, so I was definitely sort of, at that point, I was sort of blocking out some time when I could go over there. And I was actually busy for like two weeks. So I booked in the weekend in a fortnight's time from that date. I didn't say anything to the agent. Um, but I did say to her on the phone, I said, look, I actually probably will come over and have a look at this before it settles. And she, I could tell she was a little bit disappointed when I said that, but I said, look, I just, you know, before I hand over the money, I just want to see what I'm actually getting into. And I think she thought, well, hey, you should have actually done that before you signed the contract. Well, and I'm thinking, well, no, if you actually know the rules, you don't need to. That's what calling off's for. Well, calling off's not really for that, but you can get away with a lot of doing a lot of building inspections and um, your own inspections during that time. And that's what the way I like to roll because I don't actually want to drive over there if I'm never going to actually um, end up buying the property. I only want to go there when the ball's in my court and I can actually um, pull out because I've actually got it, but I've got the option to buy it, or I've got the option to pull out if it's not what I'm what, what I'm exactly what I'm after. So, um, so fast forward two weeks, uh, I, you know, I, I. <laughs> was moving ahead behind the scenes, spoke to my conveyance, spoke to, kept on giving information to my bank and was moving the whole process forward. But then I decided to um, jump in the car and drive over there. Now, a bit of an unusual situation. Like, <laughs> I, my wife's car had been, it was, it was a BMW X5 2009, had actually been breaking down. It needed a new alternator, but um, I thought it was the battery and it was coming up with a charging fault. So this is like a week before my trip to Venus. Um, I And my mechanic had fallen off his roof and broken his leg. So he was out of action and this car was sort of playing up. Um, so I was driving it because I don't like Sophie or my son to be driving it when it's sort of unreliable. Um, so we drove it home one night and with my son, I picked him up from school. I don't even know whether they had the lights on, but it was had the charging fault issue. And it just died. And I just left it on the side of the road uh, with the keys in it. They wouldn't come out because there was zero and there was no charge. Like as we're driving along, the dash all just froze. The digital GPS just disappeared. Um, the brakes were still working. The car was still driving, but none of this none of the dash was working it was basically running out dying of charge as i'm driving along so we just pulled it over the side of the road we left it unlocked the whole night um rang sophie she came and picked us up and we just left it there and it was like we sort of were talking about wouldn't it be great if someone stole it 
and we could get the insurance. So, but, so I got a new alternator, but it was still like once you've broken down and you've sort of come to that conclusion that it's only worth scrap metal. Um, she said, "What do you think it's worth?" And I said, two thousand dollars." <laughs> now, um, I put a new alternator in it. I think the day after that, and also bought a battery. The battery was three hundred bucks, and the alternator was like sixteen hundred bucks. So, I'd spent eighteen hundred dollars, and I'd renewed the registration for like a year. So that was another nine hundred. So it was an expensive couple of days for me with that car, and it was all looking like pointing towards the fact I was going to take it to the wreckers now so Will was my eldest son was in the middle of exams um, so I gave him my car Sophie had the new car so I was in the X5 now I had to decide whether I was going to drive that car over there or not it's just got the new alternator in it was working but this was like a 1400 kilometer round trip in an unreliable car through some sort of areas where there's no towns or farmhouses or road stations or fuel stations or anything like that for 100 kilometers so if i break down and no phone signal if i break down in this car i'm going to be stuck on the side of the road and there's just road trains belting through there and it's it's not desert but it's saltbush country and it's goats and mallee and it's pretty rugged anyway i decided that I was going to set off in this car and drive and inspect the shack. Now, when I was actually leaving, Sophie said to me, are you sure you want to take that car? And I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? And then my son, when I was driving to school that morning, on the way to, like I think I dropped him off on the way there, he said, Dad, you shouldn't be taking this car. It's so unreliable. And he's the one who broke down with me on the side of the road a, you know, a week before, well, maybe three or four days beforehand. Anyway, while I'm driving there, I'm thinking, this is a real buzz. I don't know whether I'm going to make it or whether I'm going to break down. Like It's life on the edge. And <laughs> I know it's a weird sensation, but that was what's actually going through my mind. I was thinking, I actually like this thrill. And sure enough, the car went like a rocket for the whole trip. And it was just brilliant. It's a diesel V6 BMW. And I had the cruise control going and it was actually so good I could just tap the cruise control up and down. And I learned all these things about the cruise control that I didn't know and I've had the car for 10 years. And it went like a rocket. But every time, maybe for the first five times I jumped in, I'm thinking, I hope it starts, I hope it starts, I hope it starts. Anyway, it did start and I drove it home and it was just amazing. And and when you're driving there, I was like, I'm a bear, I've made it a quarter of the way. Then I've made it halfway. So if it breaks down now, at least I've actually got over here in the cooling off period and looked at the shack. And if it goes back on the truck and then I fly back, well, then that's fine. But at least I'm here. And then when I'm driving back, I'm thinking, I'm three quarters of the way home. I'm almost home. I made it. You beauty. What a great car. So I drove over there. Um, I dropped in to see the agent to pick up the keys. And she was, so I left at like nine o'clock on the Friday. And I got over there at about 4.30. She was still at the office. Uh, went in there, got grabbed the keys. And she, and she looked at me. She said, now, it's really, really bad. Don't pull out of this on me. I'm thinking, well, why would you say that? Like, it's my, it's my right to pull out or not. I mean, I know she was saying it tongue in cheek, but she actually meant it. Uh, so, anyway, I grabbed the keys, and as I was driving down there, it was a beautiful spring morning, and I'm driving down through the scrub, through the crops. You know, no one on the road. Just the sun was shining. It was sort of like 24, 25 degrees, and I'm thinking, this is amazing. I stayed 
like an hour out of that town. I couldn't stay at the shack, obviously. I stayed at the local pub the night before. Um, that was a Friday night, and I met the neighbours. And we drank until three in the morning. Um, they were great people. Um, he had a plane. They've got a um, farm. They've got their kids running the farm. Um, they love their shack. They've got a big shack alongside. They knew the old guy who, li- who lived there. They're telling me stories about him and how he built old cars in the shed. He built the old speedboat in the shed. Just on and on and it went. I just li- I could listen to it for hours. And they, they actually came into the pub because they knew I was there and they knew that I'd bought the shack. So that's just country people. It was just a great night. I mean, I couldn't believe I rolled into bed at like three o'clock, but it was really, really fun and, and exciting. And then I'm driving down the next day thinking, God, this is incredible. Like I've just met these amazing people who are going to be my new neighbours. Uh, and then I'm driving out here and the sun is shining. There's no wind and it's just the crops are up high. They're all green. It's like a tabletop looking out through the paddock. And uh, life is good. Anyway, I pulled up at the shack and then my world came crashing down. I sort of walked in and I was in shock because it was so bad. And we start by, I pulled up the driveway and then walked up the staircase out the back, external staircase, rickety old thing, wobbled as you stood up it, uh, as you walked up it, and then one of the handrails had just perished. So uh, I stood at the back door at the top of the back stairs and was sort of like wobbling on the staircase as I'm trying to find the key to open the door. When I walked in, it was sort of a bit overwhelming. It was sort of a bit like a treehousey sort of feel. It sort of wobbled when you walked around in the top story. Uh, and, yeah, the view was amazing. Um, but that was really the only thing that was going for it. Everything else was run down and needed work. Um, anyway, so I was there and then my, my, my mate the farmer, he pulled up like about half an hour after I'd arrived because we were going to go fishing. He'd organised because it was such a good day. He was coming down, we're going fishing. But he was good because we actually went through the place and then I sort of said, look, well, let's see if the stove works. So I tried to go to the, you know, the antique, let's call it, meter box and turn on all the fuses that looked like they ran the the stove. I couldn't get the stove to work. So I thought, okay, doesn't have electricity. What about running water? Um, now, I could see a tank out the back. I turned on some of the taps. I turned on the bottom tap. I oh, know that's right. The agent, when she did the FaceTime, turned on the bottom tap, and I could see that there was water coming through. But then I thought, well, I really want to make sure that this hot water service works. Now, the hot water service was been like a like 20-litre machine. It was tiny, and it was down the bottom. So I turned it on, and I thought, well, I'll give it half an hour to warm up. Well, after half an hour, there was no water coming through. I turned the shower on. It was down the bottom, sto- bottom story. No water coming out. Toilet flushed, that was good. It was So the hand basin and the toilet down the bottom was fine. The kitchen was upstairs. I got my mate, the farmer, to turn it. Like we were looking for pressure pumps and making sure that all the taps. There was no water coming out at the kitchen sink upstairs. And then we're looking at the gravitation, because it was a gravitational system. The tank was actually lower than the top of the first floor. So how could it gravitate down and then up above the actual height the tank was? So... We looked at each other and we thought, hang on, you need a pressure pump in any situation to get the water to the top story. So I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did it. But it basically, there was no running water and no electricity. Um, she, The agent assured me that there was no asbestos, which she thought it was like fibro cement. Now, I bought a place before, same situation, and it was blue asbestos. Um, so... 
I just thought I'd accept that. I wasn't going to get a building inspection during these two days. I mean, I've got my builder's license, but I still don't know as much as the builders. You know, I'm an accountant by trade, not a builder. So um, I wasn't really sure of that. Um, I was jumping up and down in one of the bedrooms and the cupboard was banging. Now, I'm not sure still whether that's um, broken floorboards like or structurally something wrong. Um, but it wasn't really what I wanted because I'm thinking, well, and uh, you know, if there's four or five people up there, maybe it could collapse. I think I was overreacting. And then I went out on the deck. And the deck was amazing, but all of the floorboards were perishing. Like, so you couldn't, re- like, they were, looked like they were 80 years old, but it was from the, all the sea spray coming in from the ocean, which is located like 100 meters behind the back of the shack. Um, and the wood was just like rotting because it was so wet. So, you know, you're, you're three meters up above the ground walking around on a deck that's got floorboards that are sort of, mm, I mean, like to say that you could see through them was a slight exaggeration, but not that much of an exaggeration. You could walk around, but I wouldn't like to be having a party there or have people sitting out the front deck having a beer because you could just sort of like your deck chair could just collapse straight through. Or even if they're standing, they could just collapse um, and, and, and weigh you down, down you go. Anyway, um, we, my, my mate was in a bit of a hurry, but we basically decided, we, we had a look at also from the, the neighbours that we'd met the night before. We went, they, they said we could stand up on their place, so we actually went up there and sort of climbed up on their handrail and looked over, and the roof was really good. Um, the gutters were all pretty good as well, but some of the fascias had sort of rotted out. So uh, it needed a lot of work. So... I rang Sophie and I said, look, this is pretty bad. I'm not, I'm still in shock and I'm not sure we should be going ahead with it. She said, oh no, you know, overreacting, it'll be fine. It'll come up really well. Um, I'm sure we can fix everything. So I thought, okay. Um, and then she had a whole heap of measurements that she wanted me to do. So I started doing them, I think. Then my mate wanted to go fishing. So he went and grabbed his boat, got it all decked out, changed the battery, came up and picked me up from the front of my new shack. Uh, we went out fishing. It was a great day. I think we caught 12. We were out for like two hours and he had a mate that we came out fishing with us and we had a great old time. We laughed and laughed and laughed. I just remember catching fish and just looking at everyone in the boat and we, everyone just had smiles on their face. And I think, what other stuff can you do? Even though fishing is not my thing, where else can you go with mates and just laugh like that and just have fun and just be joking around about the fish and the size of the fish and the fun that you're having and the cockles. and It was just great. It was just like one of those moments you think, yeah, this is just so much fun. Anyway, because I was sort of thinking about other things, I took, forgot to take my jacket. So I ended up catching a bit of a cold from only wearing a shirt because the wind sort of picked up. It was quite cold. Um, we came in, we cleaned up the fish. I th- I'm not sure. I think we just sat around then and we had some beers on his... Uh, deck maybe i had to go back to the shack and do more measurements or so if i think that might be the case um but anyway we sat down in his shack and i said look it needs a lot of work and she said do you think you his wife said do you think you'll go ahead with it and i said i think i will but i said we need a plumber we need an electrician we need an air conditioning guy and you know like who can i ring i need them straight away and then they said okay well let me tell you about the plumber the plumber from Woodner, the town, a kilometre, an hour up the road. Uh, I don't know his, da- his name, but he's just been done for drug driving. So 
if you want him to do the plumbing, you have to book him up in advance, go and pick him up, drive for an hour, pick him up, bring him back down to the town, he'll do your plumbing, and then you have to drive him home that night. And I'm thinking, oh, that sounds like so much work. I mean, couldn't I just ring from Adelaide and get him to go down there? But it doesn't work like that. Uh, what about the electrician? Well, he's over at the grand final at the moment in um, Perth, uh, and he's very busy, so you're probably going to have to wait six weeks. Anyway, it was just like that was sort of the nail in the coffin for me because I'm thinking, well, all of these people are having the having this mass exodus out of these towns because, you know, the farmers are buying up all the neighbours and then the kids don't want to work on the farms or well, that's sort of changing now, but they're all moving to the city to get education and jobs and often they don't come back. So the populations in these country towns are getting less and less, but trying to get tradies is even harder because they've all moved to the city and they love the city and they've got to stay in the city to get their qualifications and they really move back to the country. And everything's so much harder in the country, trying to get, you know, just logistically trying to get supplies and then get people to do things. So I'm just thinking this is going to be a nightmare, just trying to get a tradies to fix this old rundown place. And then, like, do I need another renovation project, renovator's delight? I mean, that's the biggest, um, like, it's, it's so many rungs below renovator's delight, it's not funny. I sort of went back to the pub that night thinking, oh, boy. And I drove back at, like, dark through 100 kilometres 100 kilometers of like country roads with roos and no bull bar and just thinking, well, I better not go for 80 because if a roo jumps out from behind one of these trees, I'm going to be in all sorts of trouble. But I, I made it into town. I made it in in time for a counter meal at 8 o'clock. Um, and that was great. Didn't really do too much because I was sort of a bit exhausted by, the, by that night. I'd been out fishing all day and driven down to check out the shack and Sort of emotionally a bit of a roller coaster ride. So I just sort of had a pretty early night. Um, but I woke up during that night thinking, no way, I can't go ahead with this. This is just too bad. It's too much work. You can't even get tradies. How am I going to, th- you know, there's so much I can do, but I always need the tradies to come in and do the hard parts. I can do a lot of the hack work and the cleaning up and the preparation and sourcing materials, but I need the tradies there to actually hang the doors and put up the walls and fix the plumbing and install the pressure pumps and, you know, change the taps and all of that stuff. I mean, there's some of those I can do, but it's limited. Anyway, I just thought, now, when am I going to break this to Sophie? Like, I'd, I'd made my decision in that lying in that bed that night thinking, this is too hard. So I'm driving back, and we spoke quite a few times the next day. This is on the Sunday. Um I left early in the morning, but then sort of like in the three quarters to go. I didn't want to do it, I guess, at the beginning of the trip because it was dodgy reception and I was still thinking the car might break down. So I didn't want to have all of that extra stress at that early stage. So I thought I'll leave it to the home stretch when I know I'm going to be close to home and then break the news to her then. So I did. I like three quarters away into the journey, sort of maybe 100, 150 k's from home. I said, so if I'm, I think we need to cool off on this. This is too bad. I don't, we can't do it. We c- I mean, I like the place and I like the idea, but why don't we just hire a shack over there when we want one? We don't have to come over here. The last thing we want to do is come over here and spend all our time instead of fishing and having a good time relaxing and drinking and catching up with friends, renovating the shack. And she said, she was really like, disappointed because she was really excited about it and so were the boys so um that was an awkward conversation and then when I got home we had a family meeting and we all sat down and I said I just don't think we can do it but then Tony my mate rang and he said look you're overthinking this don't call off that's not what we do in the country I've got because I own the local pub I've got tradies who 
work for me all the time and they'll do this as a favor for me because I'm one of their best customers. And when I got that phone call, I sort of relaxed and I thought, you know what? I've got to do this not just for myself but for my family because they're so excited about it. In the day, it's not a lot of money. We can get it to a really good state and, you know, spending those, you, you cannot get one of those 100 checks in that village from Boxing Day to the 15th of January, no matter how hard you try. So you really have to own one to get those three weeks. So, you know, effectively buying this because any other weeks of the year you can hire a shack and no drama. So we're really buying this to get those memories for those three weeks every year. Now, we also go snowboarding in Japan in those in those weeks, but, but with the borders closed, you can't. So even if the borders are still closed for like the next two years, we'll have six weeks there. Now, what price do you put on those six weeks with the family while the kids are young? I sort of realized that I'll always sort of get my money back. This guy hadn't done anything for six years in that shack, or probably more like 50 years. Um, just renovating it and doing it a bit at a time and... Oh, that's right. I got a message from Soph the night before saying, can you get home early, leave in the morning early because the kids are all sort of tired and hungry and, you know, need help with their assignments and stuff. It's like, you know what? I'm over here. I feel like I'm working. I think she thinks I'm holidaying, but, you know, it's just all too hard because there's dramas at home and I need to be there for the family and I'm over here trying to sort of shack out that we don't really need. Like, it's just all too hard. Anyway, I put all that aside and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to cool off. I'm going to just go ahead with it. But And then the next day I thought, I'm actually going to go back to the owners and say that I think we really do need running water and electricity. And not if they're nice people, but I think it's appropriate because we're paying not top dollar, but a lot of money for something that's, you know, a renovator's delight. Um, I think it's important that they get the running water and electricity sorted. Anyway, the electricity was basically sorted because there was a switch behind the oven, which I didn't know how to turn on or where it was. So I turned that on next time I went over and it was all working fine. But they, they did come back and say, no, the owners are actually happy to put in a pressure pump and a new hot water service and where would you like it, inside or out? So I was really excited about that because that meant that I didn't have to worry about organising my own plumber to go over there and fix it or trying to drive the one down there that lost his licence. So I put seven conditions and basically the agent said, look, they're happy to do all the seven conditions. And I think, you know, one was pressure pump, two was hot water service, three was um, stove working, four was clean the old boat out of the shed, five was get the caravan out of the front yard, I think six was um, move a pile of bricks from the front veranda and seven was can't remember but something um insignificant but still slightly important anyway basically they said she said they were gonna they're happy to do all those seven things um so in the end um we are going ahead with it it's all still happening uh it's one of those things that it's we'll rent it out We'll use it a little bit. Um, I'll go over there and uh, fix things up and getting it get it ready for rental. Um, it won't make a lot of money. I think that we we'll probably, when we're done, it will be really really nice, um, and it will we will 
we will end up making money on it, but that's not the intention. The intention is really, um, well, sorry, it is the intention is that, but it's more of a sort of a lifestyle decision as well. Um, you know, like, and I was, if we wanted to make a lot more money, we'd buy something in Adelaide. But this is this has got the added bonus of family and memories and having fun and hanging out and creating lifelong memories that when the kids move out of home won't be available to us anymore. So there's a lot of that. Um, there's also bringing all of the value adds to the property. Um, you know, I've got to buy a boat now and uh, um, I'll set up an office over there. I think that the upside is that I will get a lot of clients and a lot of work out of it because um, already being back for another sort of week over there just last week with my sons, people sort of starting to treat me differently because I own a property is like now I'm one of the community. So I think that I've seen, I've noticed that with the school where um, parents will come to me because I'm part of the community and get me to become their accountant. So I'm expecting, that, not that I'm doing it for that reason, but I'm expecting that that will be an added bonus getting the actual um, farmers as customers while I'm over there. Um, and it'll be fun just meeting a lot of new people and just going surfing with the boys and fishing and just having fun and wakeboarding behind the boats. And yeah, all of those new experiences are all in the pipeline about to happen and um, I think it should be a really good, fun journey. Um, anyway, so did I get a bargain? I don't think I did. I think I've paid fair market value. Will I get my money back? Absolutely. Will, by doing a few things, um, like you know, start, starting out is hanging doors, um, doorways have curtain rods on them at the moment um, that all of that stuff putting in an air conditioner upgrading the kitchen getting rid of the carpet putting in floorboards sorry polishing the floorboards um, putting in nice beds putting in curtains like plantation shutters fixing up the deck all of that stuff's not going to really cost a lot of money but it will make it so much more livable and fun and um, more saleable if we did want to turn around and sell it and I think that that village I think people are cotton onto it um, over time and I think it will go up in value you know I can see in maybe two or three years it being worth $500,000 no problems at all um, which will be you know effectively another 200 grand more than I've paid for it um, what the other thing too is now the travel um, one of my close mates is getting his pilot's license my nephew's getting his pilot's license the rural GP at Woodna has three planes so I think that there will be a bit of flying involved. You could, you, the commercial airline flies within three hours of the shack, so you could fly over there and then get a hire car and drive up for the day, and then chuff off back out through um, Port Lincoln Airport. But that seems a bit far. But um, these other people all fly into Woodner or can fly to Woodner, or they can fly to a neighbour's farm um, and just land on his paddock. Uh, so. Maybe over time we'll think about the the whole um, flight sort of aspect of it and sort of cut the eight hours back to possibly, I think it's one and a half hours over and one and a half hours back in a, in a little plane. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff happening. I think it's an exciting part. It's, it's not um, going to end up making millions and millions of dollars, but, hey, um, it's going to be a fun journey and it's all a sort of more about... Um, quality of life and family time and all of that sort of stuff at the moment. So looking forward to how, how this all unfolds. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed my story about my shack. Um, thanks for tuning in and listening.